On November 21st, the Iranian national football team took to the pitch for their first group match of the 2022 World Cup against England. As the national anthem started up, the players remained silent. It was viewed as an act of protest against the continuing oppression in their home country. It also served as a reminder. While the protest movement may have slid from the front pages of global news, Iranians are still taking to the streets and still demanding change. In response, the regime in Tehran is still deploying increasingly horrifying levels of brutality to suppress the movement. This week, how has the protest movement in Iran developed since it began? Why are Kurdish communities being targeted by the regime? And how has the international community responded and are they doing enough? My name is Hugo Goodridge. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. The Iranian protests first erupted on September 16th. Three days earlier, 22-year-old Masa Amini, also known as Gina Amini, had been picked up off the streets by the Iranian morality police and accused of wearing the mandatory headscarf incorrectly. While in custody, it is widely believed that she was brutally beaten by the police. She was transferred to a hospital and died three days later. Chants of women, life, freedom quickly rose from the streets and echoed across the country, sparking more protests in Iran's cities, towns and villages. As the protests continued, the regime hit back, sending out police, militias and the military to arrest, attack and kill. While the exact numbers are difficult to confirm, the Norway-based Iran Human Rights Group reported on November 27th that at least 448 people, including 60 children and 29 women, have been killed by the security forces. The Human Rights Group added in their statement that the numbers are an absolute minimum. On December 1st, 76 days after the start of the protest movement, the Human Rights Activist News Agency reported that 18,197 Iranians had been detained. While the brutal killing of a young Kurdish-Iranian woman brought people to the streets, the protests quickly developed. One certain hallmark of these protests, distinguishing them from previous uprising, is that... This is Dr Alan Hassanian, a lecturer in Middle East politics at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter. From the early day when the protests started, after the funeral of Gina in her hometown, Saqqas, so protesters tore down images of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Iran's uh, supreme leader, meaning that this time it was not a local official or the president himself that uh, were the target of the protest, but the Islamic Republic of Iran's holiest institution, the supreme leader, was the target. And it can be understood an open call for a regime change. Masaramini's hometown became the epicentre of anger spreading out across the country. Anti-government protests then spread to the neighbouring town and people in Sna, which is the capital of the Kurdistan province, and other uh, Kurdish provinces like Kirmashan, Loristan and Ilam, uh, just the day after. In this short period, two Kurdistan-wide general strike 
one on September 19th and one on October 1st, saw the support of all five Kurdish uh, provinces in Iran. And then the protests quickly spread to more than 30 provinces across Iran. In the face of these protests, the Iranian regime responded in the only way it knows how to, with violence. Uh, the Iranian forces uh, have disproportionately used and rapidly escalated violence to crack down on a protest. Such excessive use of violence, including uh, use of live ammunition against protesters, uh, has been taking place in regions uh, such as Kurdistan and Sistan and Baluchistan, which have like ethno-religious difference from the ruling regime. A particularly brutal day was the 30th of September in the city of Zahida, the capital of Sistan and Baluchistan province. Following Friday prayers, the city's residents gathered to protest the rape of a 15-year-old girl by a police chief. The security forces opened fire on the protesters and when the dust had settled, at least 90 people had been killed in a single day, according to the Baluch activist campaign. September 30th was quickly branded as the Black Friday of Zahedan. The bloody of Black Friday of Zahedan is an indisputably aggressive and excessive act of warfare and atrocity and display of disproportionate violence. It's just an example of how the state has dealt with the protests rather than uh, encouraging them to uh, have a, a peaceful negotiation and promising change, but quite decisive and determined to use uh, violence. There is an obvious reason as to why the state has chosen to respond in such a brutal fashion. They are seeking to spread fear among the populace and dissuade further acts of dissent. Simultaneously, they are also seeking to create a narrative which they believe will justify their actions. Another method the regime has used actually has tried to turn this uprising to be militarized. One example is that uh, the, the regime across social media and fake accounts and state trial uh, outlets disseminated fake news and videos apparently showing Kurdish armed groups, opposition group called Peshmerga, among protesters. It is a kind of contradictory act of the regime because the regime has for decades tried to destroy traces of Kurdish resistance and cut the tie between Kurdish public and Kurdish political parties. But the act of uh, desperation has meant that the regime really tried to uh, divert the focus and make it more militarized to give the impression that the protests have turned to be violence and the regime must respond with full brutal force. Since the start of the protest movement, the regime has ignited a powerful disinformation campaign to try and control the narrative, justify their actions and shape the opinions of people at home and abroad. An Iranian regime cyber battalion has utilised fake Twitter accounts and spread fake news online to disseminate the idea that the protests are the work of foreign agents who seek to spread division in Iran and turn the country into another Syria. The, the argument of uh, separatism, it has been repeatedly and currently regime is really re relying on this argument to divert the focus of the protest inside Iran to some certain part of the country and turn to it to more violent, uh, armed and, you know, similar to 
justify that the regime is quite right in its argument to like discourage people to not come to the street. Through its campaign of disinformation, the regime has also sought to demonize religious and ethnic minorities in the country. Like the Arab, Azari, Baha'i, Baluchi, Kurds and Turkmen. So it has been a somehow effective source for the regime to use this kind of psychological uh, war and element in carrying uh, its repression and quashing the uh, uprising across the country, but also outside the country at a global stage. The Iranian regime's crackdown against protesters has spilt blood in every part of the country. But it has been the Kurdish communities that have been targeted with the greatest level of brutality. Kurdistan is currently is the epicentre of this protest and it was actually a slogan of the Kurdish movement, Jinjian Azadi, that tend to be the shared slogan for change across the country. But the state-Kurdish relation is tenser than ever right now. All regions and provinces of Kurdistan are militarized and the rule of martial law in some region is implemented. So also Kurdistan was, in the historical perspective, Kurdistan was the only region in Iran that boycotted the referendum for Islamic Republic in March 1979. Masar was a young Kurdish-Iranian woman and her murder sparked anger in Kurdish areas. The regime has used this anger and a long history of Kurdish defiance to the Islamic Republic to justify its use of disproportionate violence, a disproportionate violence that has now exceeded Iran's own borders, with missile and drone attacks that have hit Kurdish areas in neighbouring Iraq. During the Iranian Revolution in 1979, women's rights and gender equality was a key issue for many. But as the revolution developed and Islamic clerics gained greater influence, the issue of women's rights was pushed back with a vague promise that it could be sorted at a later date once the revolution was complete. It was a promise that was never kept. Today's protests were sparked by the murder of a young Kurdish woman and again issues of gender equality and women's rights have come to the forefront as crucial issues. But as the movement has developed into a wider call for the end of the regime in addition to being part of a wider ethnic struggle between Kurdish communities and the state, have the calls for women's rights lost steam? The gender aspect of the protest actually, unlike the uh, 1979 uh, revolution has not just decreased and, and not been pushed to the background, but actually it has also indeed uh, still is one of the most effective, uh, reliable and long-lasting locomotive for this protest, adding more value to the movement. So in this regards, it is worthy also uh, of mention that still after, as I said, more than two months of the uprising, uh, national minorities like Kurds, Baluchi, Ilakis, and specifically women of all generation and university students are the main section of the Iranian society that have carried the burden of crackdowns and repression to ensure that the protest continues. It's a serious, serious problem and a thorn on the side of half the population and they're very angry about the abuse of having to cover and to the fact that they can't express themselves in the way they should be able to express themselves. This is Dohi Fasihian, 
though he has dedicated years to working on issues of human rights and democracy. She is also a member of the Middle East Institute's Iran Programme Advisory Council. But even for women, this they understand, I think, that this is a much larger issue. It's an issue they want to change their government and they want a government that's responsive to them. That issue of hijab would be solved when you have a government that is representative and responsive to its population. And so this is about that. This is about the Islamic Republic is unaccountable to its citizens. Um, It has shown itself to be unresponsive. It will not reform. It will not allow for basic human rights and uh, political participation and representation. And I think they want to change. And so I don't think that gender equality is being pushed at all to the the back burner. I think Iranians see the bigger picture and they see that for it to be resolved in a sustainable way, they need to see a change in the regime and they need a democratic government. Inside the country, Iranians are facing fierce and brutal opposition in the hope that they can secure a government that is representative and responsive to its population. The struggle has been difficult and will likely get harder. And there are now those in the country who are looking to international powers to pile on the pressure and force the regime to change. So there is a lot of activity taking place at the international level. Many of these governments are are intensifying sanctions on violators. There, There are things that are happening, and I think we should definitely applaud that. But it's late. And I think it's important to just note that several years ago, 1,500 protesters were killed in 2019 in the Aban protests, and the international community failed to act completely. And so this fact-finding mission that we've set up um, is extremely important. It should have been probably done several years ago, but we're thankful that it's been done. A resolution to establish a fact-finding mission was passed by the UN Human Rights Council on November 24th and will investigate human rights violations in Iran related to the protests. Following the resolution, Volker Turk, the UN Human Rights Commissioner for Human Rights, gave a statement. I call on the authorities immediately to stop using violence and harassment against peaceful protesters and to release all those arrested for peacefully protesting, as well as, crucially, to impose a moratorium on the death penalty. The unnecessary and disproportionate use of force must come to an end. The old methods and the fortress mentality of those who wield power simply don't work. In fact, they only aggravate the situation. We are now in a full-fledged human rights crisis. The fact-finding mission is one of the first concrete steps taken by the international community since the start of the protests. And for Dohe, such an intensive examination of Iran's human rights violations is long overdue. These protests, I think, have caught both the United States and European governments flat-footed. I think they are waking up to the realities of the Islamic Republic. And I think their policies have been stuck in the late 1990s. Um, The Europeans are happy to quietly trade with Iran, try to, you know, encourage Iran to get back to the JCPOA. And I think there's a disconnect from, you know, where the Iranian people are um, and what's happening inside the country and where policymakers in some of these Western capitals are. 
international governments have negotiated with the Iranian regime in the past, most notably in relation to the Iran nuclear deal, or JCPOA. But the issue of human rights failed to materialise in any meaningful manner at these talks. For several decades, we've been focusing on a nuclear deal with Iran that, you know, we're in, we're out, we're talking, we're not. Um, It's constantly has been in the headlines. Um, And we were in that situation during the Obama administration where there was a very, very stringent sanctions regime on Iran, um, which created leverage for those that, you know, countries that were trying to get concessions on, on these nuclear issues. Um, but there's not, no, no, nothing to say that you can't talk about those security issues and also human rights. And what we saw at that time was that the Iranian regime said, no, we don't want to talk about that. And we won't even talk if you talk about that. And the West said, OK, that's fine. And was fine with that. And um, I think we were naive. I think we didn't use that leverage well. And we were just too eager to get concessions on the nuclear deal. And I think the Iranian government has you know, manipulated that and used that to their benefit, you know, constantly dangling this idea of cooperation on a variety of other issues, as long as you don't talk about our domestic affairs. And we've just gone along, you know, the rest of the world has gone along with that for far too long. Since the 2015 deal, international governments who are ideologically opposed to Iran have had the nuclear blinkers on seeing nothing but the end goal of preventing Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. This is undoubtedly a noble endeavour. The world doesn't need any more nuclear weapons. But while Iran uses one hand for diplomacy, it has been using the other to strike its population. When former President Trump withdrew the US from the Iran nuclear deal, sanctions were reimposed. And since then, more and more sanctions have been added. The general idea behind the sanctions is to limit capabilities, dissuade bad behaviour and put pressure on the regime. Well, Iran is one of the most sanctioned countries in the world. And this has been the case over many decades and over many U.S. administrations. And the U.S. is one of the primary authors of those sanctions. And I think while sanctions have put pressure on the general population in Iran, I'm not sure it's really had an impact at all on the regime. Um, and if the and the only impact that it might have had on the regime is that it's made the regime more vulnerable to a very angry and dissatisfied population. Um, and it's a very costly way to, to put pressure on the, the regime is to squeeze the Iranian people to death, basically. Um, and there's a lot of controversy over how sanctions are done. And then when you do have sanctions, what are you doing with the sanctions? Are you just having sanctions to have sanctions? Or are you having sanctions to get some kind of positive... A response from the Iranian government on a set of issues. And then what are those set of issues? The sanctions on the Iranian regime and its economy have certainly hurt the Iranian people. Its currency, the Iranian rial, has lost 20% of its value just since August, and annual inflation sits around 50%. Since last year, food prices have risen 100%. But like the nuclear talks, the sanctions imposed were never intrinsically linked to the issue of human rights in Iran. Furthermore, the heavy imposition of sanctions has fed the Iranian regime's narrative. Following the recent announcement that Germany was intending to impose further sanctions on Iran's Revolutionary Guard, Iran's foreign ministry spokesman 
made this statement. Germany's decision to sanction the guards, if it takes such action, is a continuation of that country's irresponsible and unconstructive action against the Islamic Republic and of their poor approach towards the Iranian government and people. The Revolutionary Guards are the official military body of the Islamic Republic and this action is completely illegal. You know, these officials in Iran have not been moved by sanctions because, again, I think it's a regime that thrives on isolation, that prefers a measure of isolation in order to stay in power. Um, Many officials don't leave the country. Um, Some do. To me, it feels like it's a tried tactic. It hasn't really worked to change regime behavior. If sanctions can't force a regime to respect human rights and prevent brutal government crackdowns, then what can be done? I feel like our policy toward Iran is more punitive. And it's punitive in a way of you get slaps on the hand, you get resolutions at the UN, you get a special rapporteur, but there's there's no sort of like, these are this is where you need to go. And when you look at countries like Burma, or you look at countries like South Africa, historically, you know, there was like a path, there was like a, you know, a way to get to point A, you know, to point B, to point C. South Africa was on the UN agenda for 50 years. And we went from a system that refused to talk, refused to cooperate, just like Iran is doing now, to eventually being pressured so much globally that we had, you know, we, the UN oversaw free and fair elections and the same with Burma. Burma isn't, you know, unfortunately has backslided since its opening in 2010. But the same thing happened. But I don't see an international consensus for democracy in Iran or even recognizing the political rights that are enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the ICCPR, the International Covenant, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. I've never seen that come in resolutions at the United Nations when it comes to the reason why Iran has these terrible human rights abuses, and and particularly now with what's going on. Wanting to end human rights abuses in Iran is a good objective to have, but it's also a nebulous objective. It requires a plan of action. Without that, it's just words. If you're going to start building pressure on the government, if you're going to be sanctioning the country and you're going to be doing these things, you need to have some kind of proactive these benchmarks and i you know i call them human rights and democracy benchmarks um to prepare for change in iran like we can't bring change to the country but i think we can see that iranians are already doing that very hard work but i think we should be ready for that and i don't think we're ready for that right now and so i think that's the kind of work that i'd like to 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 see be done the people of iran have shown that they are ready for a government that is representative of them and works in their interests. Since September, they have shown that they are willing to risk arrest, torture and even death to achieve this. The international community won't be able to give democracy to the people of Iran. They can only help and support them on their journey to secure it for themselves. But they must also be wary and avoid the mistakes of the past. There are certain things that I think the international community can begin doing to prepare for change whenever that change comes so that we're not in a situation where we don't even know what's happening and we don't have anything set up. 
Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're getting people in the room together to to to, to have, be a government in exile. I'm not saying that, but we could come up with certain language um, that the international community gets around that affirms the Iranian people's right to elect their leaders, to have free and fair elections, and to make sure the international community is in some way involved to make sure that, quite frankly, what happened last time doesn't happen, which was a sad scenario where you had groups vying for power. You had a sort of a democratic movement initially completely hijacked by one group. When the protests first erupted in September following the tragic murder of Masar Amini, the weaknesses of the Iranian regime became increasingly apparent, leading some to ask if this would be the death knell in the Islamic Republic. So two and a half months later, where does the Iranian regime stand now? The regime is in its weakest position it's ever been, because when murder and torture and rape no longer works to deter your own citizens from opposing you and coming out in the streets, you have a serious problem on your hands. And you had a serious problem to begin with if you were relying on those tactics to begin with. But nonetheless, I think one can say that they are in a very weak position um, because they're going to have to continue to commit these atrocities. And that's going to become harder and harder and harder. And final words to Dr. Alan Hassanian. Of course, there are still people benefiting from the regime and quite loyal. is no question about that. There are always some percentage. But compared to not 2009, but since 2018 and 19, when people come to the street in huge masses, we have seen the indication of how the regime's legitimacy not just traditional reasons like Kurdistan and Balochistan, which never enjoyed the support of these people, but the areas have who supported the regime for different reasons, you know, uh, economically quite benefiting from state activities. These have also like turned their back to the regime. I believe without uh, exaggerating, the regime's uh, lifetime has expired. It's just a matter of time. But I'm not sure that is a matter of months or, you know, hopefully not yet, but it will happen soon. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Louis Faour. Our theme music was by Omar El Fell. The new Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter accounts, both at the new Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.